The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, church. This is weird. Uh, It's it's actually awesome to see some other human beings because for the last three and a half months, I've been in this room by myself, very lonely experience preaching to the camera. Good to see you, camera, and people that are connected via the camera. Um, This is my best friend, by the way, uh, for for the last quarter of the year. So uh, welcome to Fathom. If you're a guest with with us, my name is Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here. Good to have you. Um, uh, Real quick, before we jump into our time in the Word, uh, we actually do need some help uh, with kind of getting these things happening. Uh, So if you're online, if you're with us and you want to help, we we really have kind of two areas that we need help with uh, as we are reopening. One is cleaning. So we cleaned all these chairs before you got here uh, so that you aren't grossed out by the gross people in the first service. Um, And they are, okay? Uh, So... Uh, you are the cleaner service. Uh, so so we need help cleaning. If you want to come to the 9 and stay late or come to the 11 and come early, that would be awesome. So uh, let, let me know. Uh, or if you, uh, we really do need some help with tech, uh, running slides and sound and things like that. We will train you on that. So please, uh, fathomchurch.org slash Sundays is where you can go and sign up for that. Or just talk to me if you're here. Okay. Uh, hey. Right here, Bibles, grab them. If you brought your Bible with you, and I hope you did, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, You can open a phone or a tablet. 1 Corinthians 7 will be in the ESV today. We don't put verses on screens, so I I actually need you to see this. I need you to see what we are uh, in today uh, because it's been 105 days since we were last in this room, and normally you would have a Bible under your chair, but of course that's disgusting as well. Everything is disgusting these days uh, is what I'm figuring out. But as you're getting to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, let me say this. I, I'm going to wager that, that almost everybody in our world is on a quest of, of some kind, like a quest, um, which makes me sound really geeky, but that's okay. Like the, 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 you're, we're on a quest um, essentially to figure out who we are. Like, I think this is, this is probably true of everyone, that we are, we're trying to uh, answer the question, who am I? Like, who am I? What's my identity? What defines me? When all said and done, how do I know that my existence as a human is of any value? I think we're all trying to answer these questions. And it begins when we are children, okay? Uh, It really does. Uh, You you ask kids questions like, uh, what are you into? What What are you into? Are you into sports? Oh, you're an athlete, okay. You're into performing arts. You like to sing or dance or do something, all right. You're performing arts, play the trombone, the flute, flautist, I don't know. Uh, You're into gaming, do you game? Uh, Are you good at math and science? Or or are you maybe a little bit better at like, like social studies and language? Like, are you better at those things? What are you into is essentially the first stage of the identity quest. And I see it in my five-year-old at home, okay? Uh, She has gone through these identity things. Like, what are you into? She would have said, first Sesame Street. That's what she was into, Sesame Street. Then we moved to Frozen for a long time. All right, we did Frozen for a long time, and then praise the Lord, she got over it. We moved on to horses, okay? After horses came Moana. From Moana, we moved straight to Toy Story, and then back to Frozen. Back to Frozen, uh, because Disney, in their wisdom, put Frozen 2 on Disney Plus right as quarantine started, okay? So I had this little girl running around my house singing, oh, just like all over the place, shouting it across the street to our neighbor kids who are shouting it back. Thank you, Disney. I really appreciate it. I couldn't even leave. I couldn't even get away from it. 
Um, but praise the Lord, we're past Frozen 2 now, and we're on to Barbie. Uh, so pray for me in that, all right? But this, like, what are you into thing, it continues. It doesn't just happen when you're, when you're young, when you're five. It continues into adulthood. We just think we've gotten more sophisticated, but we really haven't, all right? We, we think that we'll find the answer to these questions, like what defines us in success at, at work, Right? So we go to school and we get degrees and we grind in entry-level positions and with this hope of upward mobility, of success. And you can define success however you want, okay? Maybe it's prestige in some sort of field. Maybe it's being the boss, being an entrepreneur, kind of not having to, to, to be under somebody else. Or even it can be like success in making a difference. All of these things we can try and find our identity in. But Baylor scholar Robert C. Roberts, which is a cruel name to name your child. Robert Roberts, okay? Just pass on that one if you're pregnant, okay? But, um, but Robert Roberts put it, puts it like this. If Robert happens to watch this, there's no chance. But goodness, I'm sorry that I just made fun of your name on this, this stream. Uh, Robert Roberts puts it like this. Upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction and peace, but in exhaustion, in disappointment, and in emptiness. So even if you get it in your career, you're not actually going to find what you're looking for. Uh, other, play, other people will, will think that, that what defines us is more money, is more, more monetary success. It's having income. It's having stuff and toys and things like that. Uh, but in, in the book, your, your Money or Your Life, the authors of this book uh, found some really fascinating things associated uh, with money and happiness. And I know what you're thinking. The old statement, money doesn't buy happiness, that's, that's true, right? Like we believe that money doesn't buy happiness. But in fact, these authors, they found out that as you get more money, your overall happiness actually increases, but only to a point. So uh, they did these studies and they said that if you are under the poverty line and you start getting a bump in income, actually your happiness does increase as you earn more finances. It does go up, but there's this ceiling that you hit right around middle class America, okay? Right around where most of us, I would imagine, reside, where you get to the ceiling where all of a sudden the diminishing returns start to happen. And if you earn above this certain kind of middle class line, your happiness does not go up with your income. It actually starts going the other way. So in, indeed, money does not buy happiness. It can make things better, specifically if you're under the poverty line. But at some point, you will hit the ceiling of what your money can do for you. And I think it's why Jesus talks a lot about our finances, a lot. Or uh, often we'll think that what, what defines us is that improving our looks, okay, fitness and, and getting in shape and, and looking good. I don't know if you've noticed, I don't know if you noticed this, but, but fashion is now fitness. Have you, have you seen this? Like they've kind of become interchangeable. Like if you go into Victoria's Secrets, they're not selling lingerie. They're selling stretchy pants. I wouldn't know. Okay. I don't know that personally. Like, I don't go, I'm a pastor. Okay. But like, I'm just saying like, if you, that 
like fit is now fashionable. And like, if you watch the news or you watch TV or you are on social media, the social influencers of our world are marathoning and they're crossfitting and they're 30 minute abbing themselves to their best life now, right? Like they, and you can do it too. Just get you some really tight, stretchy pants and you're in, right? Like that's how it's being presented to us. But here's the, the awful truth, the awful truth, okay? It ain't going to work. You ain't getting any younger. I'm sorry, you've hit your peak. Even teenagers, like maybe you've got a little bit of peak, but not much, all right? It's coming quick and you can diet and you can work out and you can trim it and you can eat better and you can inject it and you do whatever you want, okay? But time and gravity are ultimately going to win. They will defeat you. I promise. Or, or to what we've seen in, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul has talked about. He's talked about sex and relationships. And so many of us think, oh, if I just have the relationship, if I, if I can just find my identity in somebody else, in that perfect person. But the lie that we've bought into in the last few decades is from the, the, the great prophet Jerry Maguire, who said, you complete me. And that's a lie, Right? It's a lot. Like if you've been married, if you are married, you know, that's not how it works. Marriage can be great, but it certainly is not completion. And if you think it is, you will crush your spouse under the weight of that expectation. It's just not how it works. So then the question becomes if success and money and better jobs and better homes and better stuff and a better bod, like all these things, even a best, the better relationship, if those are not the things that will bring us ultimate satisfaction, then what is? Well, you came to church. Any guesses? No, really? Camera? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's God. It's God. Okay. Just, I, you, you got to work with me, please. All right. <laughs> God is where we will find our identity. So let's look at, at what Paul's going to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's going to address this. I think it's really helpful stuff. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to start in verse 17. Here's what the text says. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So in our text today, Paul is going to repeat kind of his big idea three times. And what we just read was his big idea, which is essentially let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And he's going to repeat it three times. If, if, if He will repeat it in, in verse 17, 20, and 24. And when, when Bible is repeating itself, that's like bolding, underlining, highlighting, emoji, you know, whatever you want. Like that's, it's saying, pay attention. This is the big idea. And, and he says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And, and so his point and my first point is this. God is who defines who you are. God actually defines who you are. You already knew that from my introduction, but let's talk about this, like the theology of this, okay? It says that God has assigned to you the life you have. That's rich theology right there. He's assigned it to you. That means that God is sovereign over your life right now. So who you are has been assigned, where you live has been assigned. What you look like, what you're capable of, whether you like Frozen 1 or Frozen 2, or you could pass on both, it's been assigned. 
I don't know what that means, all right? But, but God has gifted all of those things to you, okay? He is who defines you. Now, uh, this is hard for us in our culture to really understand and get, okay? Because we live in what I'm going to call a, a what's next culture. We live in this what's next kind of mentality. What's next is actually where I'm going to find the good life. We believe this, right? I believe this all through my life. I've believed this, right? You, you uh, Middle school, couldn't wait for high school, right? Because what's next in high school? Awesomeness, right? You get to drive, all this stuff. In high school, what's next? College, college. Oh, goodness. Once I'm in college, then I'm going to have it made. And then once you're in college, you, what's next? Job, right? I want to get into the real world. What you don't understand is that college is the point, okay? It's the pinnacle. Everything is downhill after that. But I'm just, you know, you don't get it, okay? College is the best, but after that first job, which ends up being the worst job, right? Then it's the next job. What's next after the next job? Well, I better get married. What's next? Kids. What's next? Get them out of my house, right? <laughs> I want to watch my own shows now, okay? What's after that? Retirement, okay? What's after that? Grandkids. What's after that? Well, it gets bleak really fast. It gets bleak. It gets grim, okay? Don't you see, if, if, if you're always looking to what's next, to find what is going to define you. You'll miss it. Like if you're always looking to what's next, it's like Paul saying, hey, live your life. Like the life that's assigned to you. God's given it to you. He's called you there. So, so you can find your identity right now in the life that you have. It's not wrong to try and self-improve or, or get a better job or whatever. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but, but you're not going to find your life in that. It's not where identity is ultimately found. So Paul, he's going to go on to illustrate this. Look at verses 18 through 20. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Uh, what? I don't know what that even means, okay? Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Awesome, okay? I agree with that verse. Yes and amen. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. There's our thesis again. Each one should remain in the condition he was called. So Paul goes into this illustration, the first of two illustrations to back up his point. And the first illustration is circumcision, right? Which is good, wholesome Sunday morning family talk, right? Circumcision. So we need to do a little, little work here. Okay, we got to do a little back work to historically understand this. Uh, so we're in the Roman Empire at the time of this writing. And in the Roman Empire, to be uncircumcised meant that you were civilized. The Romans did not circumcise their boys. And so, so the Romans viewed circumcision as a barbaric practice. All right? And they looked down upon that. But... Clash of cultures, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, they circumcised their sons when they were eight days old as a sign that they were a part of God's covenant people. So it was unbelievably important to the Hebrew people. And now these two groups are coming together. Um, and, and, and in Roman society, okay, uh, business and politics in a Roman city like, for, uh, like Corinth, uh, business and politics were, were done in, if you remember your high school you know, history class, 
were done in these um, public bathhouses at times where men were uh, were nude. And uh, and so we have actual historical reports of Jewish men who wanted to look like Romans to essentially fit in to the Roman culture who would pursue a surgical option, kind of like ancient plastic surgery or something to effectively make them look like they weren't circumcised. Yikes. That's what I was studying in my office all week. So you're welcome. You're welcome. Moana. Okay. Got it. Um, And I always say this, okay, gentlemen, uh, we do not require any surgery to be members at Fathom church. Praise the Lord. Right. Jehovah Jireh. He is my provider. Okay. Uh, to quote Paul, remain as you are. So that's, uh, that's my circumcision jokes done. Okay. Um, here's the point Paul is, is making though. It's huge. When he says that circumcision versus uncircumcision thing, he's talking about this. He says it's madness. It's ridiculous. And, and I'll make my point, which I think is the point he's making. Your circumstances don't define you. Remember, we already said this. God is the one who defines who you are. Your circumstances, they don't define you. I mean, talk about going to extreme measures to fit in, right? Elective circumcision or circumcision reversal surgery in order to be accepted by people. I mean, people would never go under the knife just to be accepted, right? You see the point? See the application? Your circumstances, or hear me, or even a change in your circumstances. Oh boy, it's just getting dangerous, right? Let me me read it. Your circumstances, or even a change in your circumstances, it doesn't define you. It's not where identity is found. I can see it in my life, okay? Uh, I can see it in my friends' lives, my neighbors' lives, okay? I can see it like this. I think to myself often, I want to look this way. I want people to see me this way. I want to be perceived this way. And I even want at some insidious level in my heart, I want others to be envious of me in this way. It's actually the adult version of what I talked about uh, kids doing. It's just not the jocks versus the artsy kids versus the brainy kids. It's, it's more like this. This is how, it, how we think we have elevated, but this is how it works with, with let's just say, suburban guys, all right? Um, it elevates to this. This is who I am. I am the upper middle class, driving Audi, has a five-bedroom house with a great yard and a man cave, <laughs> right? That's, that's not me, okay? I don't drive an Audi, I don't have five bedrooms, and I don't even know what a man cave is. I have a frozen cave, okay? Um, but... But don't get too comfortable if that's maybe not you, okay? Because there's this other side. Maybe you 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 kind of shun that and you you prefer the blue collar version. Well, there's a blue collar. Ver- I'm not some you know uh, Audi driving, fancy coffee drinking, skinny jeans sissy, right? I'm a course banquet kind of guy, right? Two dollar hamburger, kill my own dinner, hunting kind. I see some of you. You're like, yeah, that's right, that's right. But but we've got this weird kind of like. This is who I am thing. It's a defining thing. It's these are the lenses through which I want you to see me circumcised or uncircumcised. I want you to see me this way. And Paul's argument here in the text is that even if you get it, like even if you get that, even if you define yourself with whatever life you decide is the most attractive to you, 
it doesn't count for anything. Like you won't find fulfillment there. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So um, your circumstances don't define you, okay? God defines who you are. Paul's going to give us a second illustration down in verse 21. We got to keep moving or else we're not going to finish this in time. So let's look down at verses 21 through 24. Were you a bond servant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bond servant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each one was called, there let him remain with God. There's that same message. Remain with God in whatever condition you were called. So this is the second illustration. Paul moves from the illustration of circumcision and these guys trying to be accepted because of some sort of external status into a more socioeconomic example. Really, people trying to be accepted because of their social circumstances. And I think this is basically illustrating the same principle, but I feel like we have to talk about it, okay? Because Paul moves from circumcision and he moves to the illustration of slavery, Slavery. Now, our, our, our ESV translations read bond servant, if he's a bond servant, but the word there is actually accurately translated slave. If anyone was a slave. And I think we have to address this issue because the passage that we're reading has been massively misinterpreted to actually condone slavery. Okay, so elephant in the room. Is the Bible actually condoning slavery? No. Hey, thank you. Appreciate that. You were in the first service, so that cheats. You should really, you should really know this, okay? Like the God answer earlier is just, come on, that's, that's manufactured. But no, slavery is not actually condoned in the Bible, okay? But we have to understand what Paul's doing in this context to, to understand why he's choosing this as an illustration here. So let me make some observations about kind of Paul, what he's doing, and slavery, okay? First, in Corinth, in the city of Corinth, one-third of the population at this time were slaves, okay? The next third of the population were what we call freedmen, which is actually mentioned in the text, and that third of the population are former slaves who had either earned or bought or been released and were now one tick up on the social status ladder, but they are free. They are no longer slaves, although some, some of them, their lives are significantly worse as freedmen, okay? So the illustration, first of all, the reason why Paul chooses this is because everybody in that church would have been like, yeah, I mean, two-thirds of us are freed or slave or, or freedmen or slaves. So we get that. Okay. It would have made sense. Second, some are going to attempt to make the slavery uh, in the Roman empire sound better than the slavery in the American South. All right. So, um, so there are some differences between the, the slavery of the Roman culture and the slavery of uh, the American South. I just don't feel that that argument is compelling enough for me to be like, yeah, slavery in Rome. It was awesome. It wasn't. Okay. Slavery is always awful. It's not like there's a good version of slavery and a bad version of slavery. Slavery is sin. It's always sin. The slaves in Rome, they're not legally persons. Okay. 
Slaves had no legal rights. They were classified as things. And while they did have a bit more upward mobility than American slaves uh, during the, that, that time period in our history, um, it's still awful. It's still sinful. It's a sinful system that goes against basic biblical ethics of human worth, value, and dignity. People are people. They're not things. And I'll just tell you this much real quick. I would say the exact same thing of racism in our cultural moment. I know we've been talking a little bit about this, but like racism is a sin. Even if it's not in your mind as bad as it used to be, it's still a sin, right? And systemic racism is a result of the fall, always. And we don't pass that off. This has no place. Racism has no place in a Christian worldview. And as followers of Jesus, we should care about every single issue of human dignity. We like to care about a few of them, right? We really like to care about uh, the unborn. So we talk about abortion and we really like to care about like human trafficking for whatever reason that is kind of like a hot button issue and absolutely fight those things. But goodness, slavery is rampant in our world. Racism is still on the, I mean, read the news. It's still a real thing. And as Christians, these are all issues that we should care about and fight against because all people are people. They're created in God's image. They're not things and they're not devalued. So, so Paul, he's, he's not making an argument here against slavery. He's using it as an illustration that all of his, his hearers would have understood. And it was still atrocious. Third thing, Paul then says, and here's his language. He says, don't be concerned about your slavery. But then in the same breath, he says, but if you can gain your freedom, Go for it. Um, so does Paul want them not to be bothered about the fact that they're slaves, or does he want them to try and get free? See, this is the reason why uh, the, the ambiguity there is the reason why people have been confounded by this passage. Because you can take one phrase or the other phrase, and if you set all of your, your chips on that phrase, you're going to get an incomplete idea of what Paul is doing there. So this is why it's confusing. And then fourth, remember Paul, he's not trying to make a point here about whether slavery is right or wrong. If he were, I think he would have chosen a different bit. This is not a passage on slavery. This is an illustration for a larger point that he is making about identity. So in light of all of that, here's his words. Were you a bond servant when called? Don't be concerned about it. And I think Paul is saying the exact same thing that he said earlier. I think he's saying your slavery is not what defines you. No matter how horrific it is, it's not what defines you. It's thus not where your identity can be placed. But then I get, I don't think he's condoning slavery because he goes on in the next breath. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, which I think is a really helpful encouragement for me because what Paul is saying is, is hey, if, if you get the means, man, it, increase your status. Like get out of being a slave. Like God defining who you are does not freeze you forever in your present condition. That's not what he's saying when it says that God defines you, remain as you are. He's not saying, well, never better yourself. That's not what he's saying. It's kind of like Paul is saying, hey, in the life that you've been given right now, like right now, you can find your identity in him. 
It is God who defines you. It's Jesus who called you. Of course, you should try to better yourself, especially if you are oppressed. But don't think that your identity can be found in even throwing off the the shackles of slavery. True identity is only found in Christ. And, And that's where I want to make my third point for the morning, okay? Suffering doesn't define you. This is one we need to hear. Circumstances, listen, they don't define you, but suffering. You can't find your identity there either. The hardest things, the sufferings in your life, not even gross oppression from others, those are not the things that define you. For me, our miscarriage doesn't define us. My parents' divorce doesn't define me. My wife's health issues, they don't define me. Right? My own personal sins and struggles, those things do not define me. Like I heard the story of a guy named Daniel. Uh, so uh, I heard this from another pastor, Daniel. He's this young guy, uh, probably in his 20s or mid-20s or something. Uh, loved the Lord in this guy's church, uh, doing well in business, kind of like the up and to the right guy, like doing everything well. Came down with a very rare bone cancer in his mid-20s. So he's meeting with his doctors. They sit down and they are just brutally honest, which by the way, you want doctors who are brutally honest with you. You don't want them to be like, yeah, you're going to be fine when like you're not. So they were brutally honest with him. And they said this, Hey man, like anything that we do to battle this bone cancer, it's going to be like the first time we've done it. Like we don't know. We don't know what it's going to do to you. It's likely going to be a really painful process. And frankly, we don't think we can even extend your life that long. But if you want to fight, man, we will fight with you. And so Daniel says, yeah, I will fight. I'm in. So he was down in Texas. Uh, They moved him up to the Mayo Clinic and they began this, this very experimental radical treatment on him. And here's what happened. The way that the doctors thought it would go was the way that it went. I'd love it to be like one of those awesome stories where it's like, oh man, they figured it out and he's doing great. Uh, It was not good. The disease just crushed his body, just crushed him. Wasn't long before he couldn't walk any longer. Wasn't long before he couldn't even move his arms anymore. His bones, they were just wasting away from the inside. And and in one of the last conversations he had with his pastor, who I heard the story from, um, just a few days before this guy died, before Daniel died, the pastor noted something. He's like, man, the more, the more that, that the cancer was crushing this, this guy's body, the more he seemed to love and worship Jesus. In fact, in the, 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 the last conversation he had, Daniel said, hey, I think I'm beginning to understand what Paul meant when he talked about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Because all I can think about is what Jesus did for me and because of me. And he said, I, I know I'm dying but I'm grateful for what Christ has done. He, his, how he has worked in my life and how he has rescued me. How is it that a, 
that a young man in his prime who is being crushed in his body, losing everything that this world would say is what you need for the good life, for, for contentment, for happiness. How is all of that being stripped away from him? And then he can say something like that. Like, how can he come to that posture? Daniel's identity wasn't in his cancer. His identity was in his savior. This one's the hardest one for us, I think, to hear. You are not your suffering. Your suffering is not what defines you, no matter how hard it is. Your circumstances don't define you. Your sufferings don't define you. God defines you. Here, I'll put it like this, okay? God's the only one who gets to tell you who you are. He's the only one who gets to tell you who you are. Nobody else gets to tell you who you are. Frankly, you don't even get to tell you who you are. Your suffering doesn't get to tell you who you are. The culture doesn't get to tell you who you are. Your circumstances, they don't get to tell you who you are. Only God. Are you single or are you married? You circumcised or are you uncircumcised? I don't want to know. Right? Slave or free, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, blue collar, white collar, suburban, urban, rural, farmer, whatever. Okay, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, any ethnicity that you want to pick. Those are all a part of you. They are. They are a part of you. But only God defines you. And, and my hope is that, that we would find our identity in him. That, that maybe today you'd pay some attention to yourself. What is it that beckons for your identity. Some of you, your, your entire identity is built up in, in your physical body, right? You're, you like live at the gym and you measure your food, eat stuff that's disgusting. I don't know, like make, making shakes. I, I don't do it. Okay, but like, and, and listen, listen, I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong. Health stuff is right, okay? You have a responsibility to steward your body, okay? But, but I'm saying that some of you have taken it to this obsessive level, to this level where you think your identity is being built out on how you present physically, and it's just not. You gotta be careful, you gotta be responsible, but you're not gonna find your identity there. It'll let you down. Man, some of you, it's in like, your identity is wrapped up in your life, right? Like your, your home, the place you live, your job, right? God help us, your kids' athletic careers, I love y'all kids. You're just not going pro, okay? I've seen you. I see you right now. No, it ain't happening, okay? Love you. Love you. Oh, goodness, here's the one. Um, some of you, it's in your parenting. Moms, dads who find their identity in their kids, little sinners in your image. Yikes, okay? It's in those things. And, and listen, if, if, if you're finding you're, you're drawn, your identity is drawn to any of those things, it's like you've been kidnapped. It's like you've been kidnapped because those things are going to betray you. They're not going to, to, to pay out in the way you think. And, and yet we fearfully cling to them because, because we're so afraid. It's like we're clinging to life. We're so afraid of who we would be if we didn't have those things. The reality is you won't always have any of those things. 
that lets you down. Those things cannot ultimately satisfy or define you. Goodness for others, it's political affiliation or, or ethnic identity. Others, it's in something that you have done. You've let a sin or, or, or something that you have accomplished uh, define you. Or it's something that's been done to you, a suffering or a hardship. And that is how you have self-defined. Uh, none of those things, listen, none of those things are unimportant. But none of them is of ultimate importance. God is the only one who gets to tell you who you are. That's the only one in whom you will find true identity. And listen, I love the, how he ends this. You were bought with a price. Don't be a slave again to any person, especially to yourself. Lead the life to which God has called you. He's assigned it to you. He's blessed you with it. Find your contentment in him. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are um, thankful once again for your grace. Thankful once again to be in a room, to be online together. We're thankful once again for uh, this word from the Apostle Paul. And Father, for the challenge that it is. Lord, every time I preach a sermon that feels like it's applicable to every single person, Lord, I just pray that the Spirit would would contextualize this for each one. Lord, for me, where I fall short of finding my identity and my, 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 my definition in you, Lord, would you, would you grow me in that? For, for my brothers and sisters here, would you call them and remind them of this? God, we want our hope to be in you. We want our identity to be in you. We don't want to become slaves to something else. You have bought us with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. But let us live in that reality today. But we love you. Thank you, God, for these great words. Use them to, to take us deeper in our love for you and for each other. We pray this by, uh, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.